This is Think Sustainability, where we look at practical solutions to a better planet. I'm Lawrence Bull. When it comes to big decisions, we're often told, just look at the facts. Facts are impartial, reliable. We can arrange our facts in a logical order and see what they bear out. Don't get emotional, someone might say. Just let the facts guide you. From Spartacus to Spock, we've looked at this attitude as level-headed, rational and reasonable. But I'm about to tell you a story that might change how you feel about just using facts and logic to make decisions. It's the story of an office worker known as Elliot. And Elliot's story has big implications for the future of humanity, because it tells us that when we're confronted with large-scale problems like climate change, we should stop trying to use our heads so much and start listening to our hearts. No, no, but in a science way. Hey, don't run off. I have references. Anyway, when Elliot returned from sick leave, his colleagues would have been pleased. He had a strong business acumen and a sharp memory. Around the office, he had status. He was a role model for younger colleagues, and he was back to his old self. His tumour had been successfully removed. His headaches were gone. And to see him talk and move, you might never have known he'd been away. A neuroscientist would later find that he was more than competent in every cognitive criteria that he was tested on. But during his examinations, the neuroscientist noticed something odd. When Elliot was asked to recall events from his past, he spoke effortlessly. His memory was fine. He was calm and relaxed. At first, the neuroscientist didn't see the problem. But in subsequent appointments, it became clear. Elliot could describe the most tragic event of his life as if he were recounting a TV show he'd seen. Not one bit of emotion. No sadness, no impatience, no frustration at the barrage of questions. The neuroscientist and a colleague showed Elliot pictures of buildings collapsing in earthquakes, burning houses, people with gory injuries, people who are about to drown in floods. Nothing. No emotion. Elliot acknowledged the change. He knew his feelings were gone. But imagine, your favourite piece of music moves you no more than the sound of traffic. The funniest joke is no more exciting than an announcement at a train station. A loved one dies. But for all you feel, they might as well have been a stranger. But that wasn't the strangest part of his condition. Far from it. Back at work, his colleagues soon realised something was seriously wrong. He knew how to do his job. He didn't seem to have forgotten anything. He spoke about politics and the state of the economy with good humour. But it quickly became obvious that he couldn't do his job. Or any job, for that matter. Because when it came time to get anything done, he wouldn't. Say he had to read and organise documents for a client. He might spend a whole afternoon deciding how to sort them. Alphabetically? Date? Size? Importance? Relevance? Or he might just diligently read one of the papers from beginning to end. Elliot's problem was that he struggled to make decisions. No matter how big or how small, Elliot couldn't decide. Here's how Elliot's therapist, neuroscientist Antonio Damasio describes the phenomenon. The thing I most liked in these patients when we asked them about restaurants, 
what restaurant do you want to go to tonight? I said, well, we could go to this one. And they said, but uh, I, I, I take it that this restaurant has been rather empty recently. So that's probably a bad sign. It's a sign that the food may not be so good. On the other hand, it's true that it is more empty. We're likely to get a table and therefore we should go there. But then, and the thing will go on endlessly until you really feel like pounding on the table and said, well, get real and choose. But the reason why they can't choose is that they haven't got this sort of lift that comes from emotion. It is emotion that allows you to mark things as good, bad, or indifferent, literally in the flesh. And it is that kind of emotional uh, impetus that they are lacking. They cannot conjure up for a given situation an emotional state that would decide them in one direction or another. Without emotions, you can't make good decisions. See, your emotions are like a compass pointing you towards your values. Without your emotional compass, you lose sight of your values and that makes decision-making hard. Imagine you're walking to the beach and your path splits in two. On your left is a shortcut, but you'd have to climb down some rocks. On your right is an easier walk, but it'll take you longer. This decision's easy because your emotions do the work. Your emotions have learnt from past experiences. Maybe the last several times you climbed down things, you had a bad time. For example, one time you were in a similar situation and your foot skidded down and your heart skipped a beat. That event was too inconsequential for you to remember, so to make things easier, your brain put up a little emotional warning sign for when it notices similar situations. The last time you walked a long way, you saw an interesting frog. That was cool. You don't remember it, but your brain put up a little positive emotional breadcrumb, guiding you in that direction. Individually, these emotional signposts mean very little. But when it's time to make a decision, and your brain sees one option covered in emotional warning signs and the other option with tasty breadcrumbs, it can make one tiny decision after another in fractions of a second. This gets you through the countless decisions you have to make every day without evaluating endless lists of pros and cons. It keeps you from getting stuck in analysis paralysis. We're constantly being swayed in what we do by just a little teeny change uh, something that comes, for example, from our past experience with a certain kind of situation. But what we remember from the previous situation is not just the facts, and not just the outcome that it may be good or bad. We also remember whether or not what we felt was good or bad. When you are making decisions any day of your life, you do not only remember what the factual result is, but also what the emotional result is. And that tandem of fact and associated emotion is critical. And of course, most of what we construct as wisdom over time is actually a result of cultivating that knowledge about how our emotions behave and what we learn from them. Elliot was fired. To be clear, Elliot had no problem understanding what he was supposed to be doing. His ethical judgments and understanding of social conventions were pretty normal. He thought stealing was generally wrong and that he shouldn't cheat people. And he knew what he wanted. He could see the end point, the goal. At the end of the day, he just wanted to be a good father, husband and co-worker. He wanted to keep his job and his family. 
but he couldn't. Every subsequent job Elliot was able to get, he lost. His marriage ended, then he got married again, briefly, to a woman his friends and family didn't approve of, and he got divorced again. In looking at cases like Elliot's, Damasio's thesis was essentially this. Emotions give life meaning. Without them, one thing is no better or worse than another. How do you choose between two things if you feel nothing for either? If you don't have feelings, the universe is a random series of arbitrary events. If you do have feelings, the universe contains the most important things there are. Philosopher Martha Nussbaum compares our minds to a landscape. She says emotions are the geological upheavals that turn a flat plain into a vista of mountains and valleys, uneven, uncertain, and prone to reversal. She says we can't divorce emotions from human reasoning because they're a fundamental part of our reasoning. Without them, we have no values. We're on a flat plane with a broken compass, walking in circles. That's a person for whom nothing stands out as more important than anything else. And therefore, the person has a terrible time acting, deciding what to do. And so the idea is that it's reasons for acting, reasons for living that emotions supply. Emotions are our connections to the things that we think of as most important. It's a sense of importance that would be lacking in such a person. Now, the Stoics thought that you could supply that from outside by just giving the person a very elaborate set of duties to fulfill. And um, maybe up to a point you could do that, but I think it wouldn't last long. You can give someone a list of duties, and they'll probably complete those duties. If you're their boss. But if you want to move other people, motivate them, get them to do something they don't have to do, like, for example, inspire them to take action on climate change, you're going to have to activate their emotions. But how do you make someone feel the emotion without having had the accompanying experience? Well, you tell them a story. We now understand this works through what's called mirror neurons, that when we observe somebody doing something, we can actually experience elements of it as if we were doing it. This is Marshall Gans. He's an expert in the field of community organizing and a senior lecturer at Harvard University. So when we identify with the protagonist, we're actually beginning to experience where the protagonist went, what values, sources he or she drew upon, where they get their hope, what the fear was. And so what we're learning is how to deal with that, not in a tactical sense, but in a much deeper way. The moral that a story teaches is not like haste makes waste, it's the experience of haste making waste. And that experience becomes part of our experience. So the moral that a story teaches is to the heart, not just to the head. That's why our faith traditions teach through stories. That's why our cultures teach through stories. This is a huge reason why so much information on climate change falls on deaf ears. 2%, 3%, so many parts per million, the greenhouse effect, do this, don't do that. It doesn't matter how spot on those facts and instructions are. If we can't feel them, they have very little value. Yeah, we can act on one or two, maybe. But it takes exhaustive, conscious effort. And that's because we're fighting against something. We're going against the unconscious emotional markers we've already set down. I can offer you the Sunbeam hair dryer with bonus watch at $39.95. Balance Australia Day diet should consist of a few nice juicy lamb chops and beer. 
Thorpey says the taste is fully sick. Bluebird GL sedan for $10,000 and air just $100 extra. New fashion pork, the other white meat. Giving young Aussies a chance. We're going against breadcrumbs and signposts that have been placed across our mental landscape for our whole lives. Hmm, steak or veggie stir-fry? Yummy, yummy steak! Yummy, yummy steak! Should I buy a hatchback or an SUV? Max power! Boom, boom! Carbon tax? Get your grubby hands out of my buckets! In our society, so many of our decisions are made through the lens of consumer choice, rather than, say, sustainability. This isn't because we're brainless or slavish. It's because in order for us to understand the world and our place within it, we tell ourselves stories. And there's one big story we've been telling ourselves our whole lives. The story that has won is capitalism, and I guess the neoliberal form of capitalism, because the Cold War... Communism was defeated and capitalism won the day. And so it's sort of the undisputed winner in the, in the narrative sense. Actually, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Chris Reedy. I am the Professor of Sustainability Transformations at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at University of Technology, Sydney. I'd like to get into your own story. Can you tell me the story you tell about yourself and how you explain who you are and what you do? Yeah, well, I was um, I was born in the Blue Mountains and I grew up right on the edge of what would become the National Park there and, and developed a real love for nature as a, as a child. At uh, university, I did an environmental engineering degree and wanted to go out and make a difference to um, environmental issues and found myself in an environmental consulting role and thought, yeah, this is, this is it. This is what I really wanted to do. And I got sent to the Middle East, to Qatar, and I was working on a huge gas processing plant there to do a waste management plan. It was in 50 degree heat. There were workers there, mainly from the subcontinent, that were out there working in that heat while I was, as a consultant, was in air-conditioned luxury with a fridge full of beer. And just the, the inequity of that really struck me. And then working to develop a waste management plan for this plant, which was, you know, ripping hydrocarbons out of the earth and putting all the waste out into the atmosphere. And then we were going to worry a little bit about what they did with their recycling. <laughs> like they're sticking a Band-Aid on a, on a <laughs> amputated leg, right? At that point, I was like, right, I'm, I'm out. I'm getting into um, sustainability. I'm going to work on projects that actually are about making, um, making things better rather than making things a little less bad. What are the components of the dominant story? The elements of the capitalist story are essentially that we're all in competition with each other, that we're all rational, self-interested individuals who go out there and maximise our well-being and utility. It's a story that is about ownership and about accumulation of capital rather than about the commons and common action. And it's a story about free markets and small government. So in that story, in that narrative, the way to solve climate change would be for governments to get out of the way and for the market to solve it. And that simply hasn't happened. And that's because that story has fundamental problems with it. It's the story that we have all bought. And the other big part of that story, of course, is that we require endless economic growth. And that's 
not possible on a finite planet, but it's still what we tell ourselves and it's how the economy operates and it's what politicians are elected on and, and have to answer to their constituencies for. And those stories are winning the day and they're putting us into a, a situation of crisis. My work, I deal a lot in metaphors, right? It's a, a convenient way to explain particularly a story in science, for example. Um, you could see climate change as where the narrative of capitalism breaks down. Like, yes, it is a, an efficient way to create products and to create wealth for various people, etc. But if it's not an accurate representation of how human societies could sort of optimise themselves or something, then at some point it's going to break down. And perhaps that's what we're seeing is the breaking down of the metaphor of capitalism in a sense. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to put it climate change kind of butts up against that dominant narrative of um, neoliberal capitalism and says, hey, there's a problem here. There's that well-known quote that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And so people are feeling very stuck in this moment of being quite unsure about how we can get out of it. We spoke before and you mentioned uh, dystopian stories, which are incredibly popular. I feel like more popular than ever now. Perhaps that's part of how we're dealing with issues like climate change. Do you see that in your work? Yeah, I mean, the dominance of dystopian narratives in so many genres as well, gaming, film, novels, it's they're everywhere. So it's hard not to think that there's not culturally there's something going on there, but we're, we're trying to process and deal with what that kind of future might be like, but also how we respond to it. The story that I've been telling myself is something along the lines of there'll be more and more storms, more droughts, more floods, etc., and more and more people will die and or get uncomfortable and things will get expensive and difficult. It'll be distributed differently depending on where you are and how wealthy you are, etc., until at some point it becomes number one on the list of demands from voters and consumers. But of course, by then, so much damage is done. And of course, there's so much more damage that will be done. What are your thoughts on that story? Um, it's probably the story that feels most likely right now. And I try and be a lot more optimistic than that because I've got to work on this stuff every day and it's hard to get out of bed if you don't. So um, I think most big changes in the past, that is the kind of process that's happened. It's it's built and built and built until, and done a lot of damage along the way until, um, you know, it just, change just has to happen. And the um, anyone who resists it gets thrown out and, um, and you know, in... <laughs> particular revolutions, that's been very violent. But, um, you know, maybe that same kind of thing could happen here. What I would like is that we can find, and what I, what I think we have the capacity to do is to find a more positive narrative out of this. And maybe that's asking too much <laughs> of humanity. I hope it's not. But I do think we've got the capacity for it. Chris Reedy and his colleagues understood the power of stories and wanted to find another narrative people could tell. One that would impart the urgency of the climate crisis and bring people together toward a common goal of preventing as much damage as possible. An alternative to the capitalist and dystopian narratives. And crucially, one in which the individual can see themselves and understand their role. 
something that could stop our emotional compasses from pointing towards consumption and despair and reorient them towards somewhere more sustainable. A good story is really about characters, people that you relate to and you feel some sort of connection to and you're kind of rooting for them in some way. And a lot of the stories that we tell about climate change, there's not much role there for individuals to make a difference. It's like, oh, we've got this huge challenge and it's... um, it's, it's going to lead to these horrible, horrible futures and, um, and it's so big and there's not much you can do about it. Um, it's, it's too big for you to change. And so that's, that's a really, that's not a good story. Mm. <laughs> so over many decades, we've done a really bad job of creating compelling stories about climate change. So Chris and his colleagues approached 72 people who were working on the front lines of trying to make systemic change happen. Academics, activists and workers at non-government organisations. And they asked them for the stories that they tell. The responses that they did come up with kind of fell into three categories and and two of them are pretty unsatisfying. The first one was that there would be some sort of crisis, a really pointy crisis, something that's right, if we don't deal with this right now, we're, we're screwed kind of thing. And so when that came, everything would suddenly change. Second was that there would be some sort of awakening and and it gets it's almost sort of magical thinking it's like oh suddenly the politicians realized that what they were doing was wrong and that they Mm. needed to and so that's a very sort of unconvincing yeah I agree (laughs) while I was reading that in your paper I thought but when has that ever happened before exactly (laughs) it's kind of a get out of jail free Mm. card of yeah we all woke up and everything was different afterwards Mm. so how's that going to happen what's What sort of things would we need to do to build people's capacity so that they would wake up? And yeah, a lot left unsaid there. The third was some sort of collective social movement, citizens movement that um, slowly builds around the world to push politicians for action on this topic and, and I guess to become political representatives as well. That's probably the most convincing one. It's not an easy path, but you know I think what we saw in the last federal election here in Australia of the all the teal candidates getting up on very sort of grassroots campaigns in different electorates is consistent with that kind of idea of a citizens' movement on climate change. So maybe that we're starting to be at the point where those local movements can start to be more of a global movement. But these stories had a problem. They were missing some of the crucial ingredients that fire the audience's mirror neurons the bits that make us feel something, that communicate emotional information. We thought that of all the people we could ask, these people that are working right at the front lines of trying to create that kind of change might have some stories to tell about what they thought that change would look like. What would be the end point? So where does the story get to in the end? And what might be the plot? What sort of actions would happen between here and the future to to get us to that better place? And mostly they were very able to describe what they wanted as the end point. They had a pretty clear vision that was fairly consistent across a lot of different people as well about what would a better future look like. Things like humans in harmony with nature, cooperating with each other, strong well-being, social justice, you know, not things that anyone's going to disagree with really. <laughs> but they really struggled with the plot. Yeah, the middle. <laughs> How, How do, do we, we get there? How do we get from here to that ideal future. Mm. And very few could tell a story about how that would actually happen. Ah, yes. Plot. The part of the story where the stuff happens. 
wherein we, the audience, go on an emotional journey with our protagonists. I was surprised that they didn't have a clearer theory of change. I thought since these people were, were the ones working really hard to create transformation and to, to tackle climate change and economic reform, they'd have really clear ideas about how this step would lead to this step and then this would lead to this. They'd be able to tell us a story about how it would happen. Maybe we can talk about examples of stories that you think could fill that niche. What sort of stories do we need and where can we find them? Well, I think we need hopeful stories. You say the word utopian and people are, oh, you know, that, that will never happen. But a utopian ideal is just a, a better future that is something we can aspire towards. And it doesn't mean that it's achievable, but at least having those visions as a counterpoint to the dystopian visions that are so prevalent, I think is really important. Problem is, you know, there's not a lot of dramatic conflict in a lot of utopias and that's less compelling for audiences. So it's hard to tell a really interesting utopian story. The biggest issue we're dealing with is climate change, and yet it rarely appears in any dramas or <laughs> movies or <laughs> TV shows that you might be watching. There's a really interesting um, website called the Good Energy Stories Playbook, and they've got a whole playbook for how you can, from really subtle things through to you know, making a whole story about climate change, just build in some elements of climate change into those stories. They're now running award processes for screen media that does a good job of doing that. So just normalising the idea that climate change is real, it's something that the characters in screen media are dealing with, therefore it's something that you should be taking seriously as well. Even those quite subtle moves can make a, a big difference, I think. Climate fiction in literature is one field where this is happening, and it's been very dominated by dystopian <laughs> novels as well. They're the but, good ones. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot happening. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's been a, a few attempts to, to do something um, different. So Kim Stanley Robinson's The Ministry for the Future, for example, is, is really trying to explore, you know, if there was set up in government this Ministry for the Future. And there are real-world examples of ministers and commissioners responsible for the well-being of future generations in Wales, Scotland, Sweden and the United Arab Emirates. In um, Kim Stanley Robinson's book, he goes through the whole sort of near future history of, of how this Ministry for the Future is at the centre of the changes that are being made on climate change. And it's not naively optimistic in, in that sort of utopian sense. A lot of bad things happen in the novel. There's disasters, there's terrorism. It's not pretty, but it is somewhat realistic in terms of how we might inch forward towards a, a better future on climate change. I suppose part of the problem we're dealing with is that stories are a, often a form of escape, maybe usually a form of escapism. Yeah. Most of the people I know probably have this sense of climate anxiety and it's nice to be able to, I guess, either fast forward past that to the dystopia <laughs> and imagine <laughs> how that would play out or just escape from it completely and try to forget about it for a while. In Robinson's book, there's a lake of people who are boiled alive, essentially, yeah. in, in India, which is like horrifying. And then the solutions are very 
abstract and policy kind of wonky. And they're interesting. I mean, he, he goes into a lot of detail about all of these sort of different technologies and different economic and policy ideas. But it's a weird, weird book. <laughs> <laughs> it is a weird book. It's kind of a, a policy wonk book in a lot of ways. And he spends a, an inordinate amount of time talking about glaciers and yeah. <laughs> how to get them stuck down again, <laughs> yeah. which I think is all influenced by what he's interested in. So it's, it's certainly an imperfect example of what I'm talking about, but it's it's a valiant attempt. It does try and navigate this path between dystopia and, and utopia and, and try and be a little bit realistic about that more novels and more storytelling of all kinds that grapple with that kind of pathway would be interesting to see. That's it for this episode of Think Sustainability. Thanks to Dr. Chris Reedy for speaking with me. This series is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. It was made in Sydney on Gadigal land. You can listen to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lawrence Bull. Thanks for listening.